Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's Eddie Trunk, and it's time for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday, podcastone.com, Apple Podcast, and, of course, on Spotify, free, as usual, each and every week. Thank you for subscribing, listening, downloading, favoriting, whatever you do. <laughs> Thank you for doing so, and I hope you are having a good week. We got another double dip for you, two big interviews. Rick Emmett of Triumph talking about his solo music, the upcoming Triumph documentary, and a whole lot more. You'll enjoy that conversation. And also after that, Rachel Bolin, co-founding member of the band Skid Row. We talk about a little Skid Row stuff and also uh, Rachel's latest business venture, which is soap. Yeah, soap, like take a shower hand soap, like really good quality, great soap. And it's a company called Dirty Rocker Soap that he launched. We touch on that as well. So get ready for Rachel a little later on in the podcast. First up, Rick Emmett, guitarist and lead vocalist of the band Triumph, covering a lot of grounds. It's a pretty long one this week, so I'll keep this intro sort of short. But I do want to make mention of the passing of legendary UFO bassist Pete Way. Anybody that knows me knows I am an enormous UFO fan Pete, one of my all-time favorite bass players, one of my favorite characters ever, one of my favorite stage performers ever. Pete is a guy who had a massive impact and influence on so many artists, many of whom went on to much greater success, quite frankly. But Pete really was an innovator and a super influence on many, many rockers. Look no further for proof of that than the massive amount of people who posted about Pete on social media after his death was announced last Friday. And you name it, anybody in a major rock band talked about Pete and how special he was. I didn't know Pete extremely well personally, but I was a huge fan 
And many know, like I said, how big a fan of UFO I am. And Pete was a big reason for that. So very, very sad news losing Pete Way at the age of 69. I did a big tribute to him on the radio on my Sirius XM show this past Monday. And my guests included Joe Elliott, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam, Nikki Six, and Michael Schenker. It was unbelievable. And I tell you, I could have, I mean, the show is two hours, my daily live show on Sirius XM. I could have easily gone eight hours. I had so much outreach from different people in different bands that wanted to talk about Pete Way and how important he was to them, but I simply didn't have the time to have everybody on. So we'll no doubt be talking about Pete a lot more as we go forward and uh, you know give these people an opportunity to say how important he was. But in the tribute, those four major names, just incredible to have, and they were all great. Next week, I will bring you those interviews. If you did not hear them and you don't have Sirius XM or you're outside of America or Canada and can't get Sirius or XM, I will bring you those interviews here on the podcast with Mike McCready, Joe Elliott, Nikki Six, and Michael Schenker all talking about Pete Way. Uh, just need to let Sirius XM have that audio exclusively for another week or so. And if you have Sirius or XM and you missed that show, Please listen to it on demand now on the SiriusXM app. If you don't have it and uh, or you're outside of the U.S. or Canada, I'll bring it to you here on the podcast next Thursday. It will be great either way to celebrate Pete Way. And uh, again, all the interviews you hear on this podcast originate on Trunk Nation on SiriusXM 106 volume. Hope you join me there. And if you're not already on board, please come on board and listen to Daily Rock Talk 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each and every day live with nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern. And like I said, grab the show, grab interviews on demand on the SiriusXM app. Just get on board if you're in the U.S. or Canada. Quick note to those of you that may or may not be interested in getting custom personalized videos as a gift for someone on Cameo of me. If you are interested in doing so, very, very helpful tip. Be sure to order them directly from the Cameo website, which is Cameo.com. Very simple. Just put my name in the search menu, Eddie Trunk, and uh, the order information and how to do it is right there. Do not do it from an app on an Apple device. The reason being is they will charge you more and they will also deduct money from me. Apple is commissioning money from Cameo for whatever reason. I have nothing to do with that, of course, but it's a, it's a substantial amount too. And they also charge a premium to you for ordering it through the app. So very simply, if you're interested in booking me on Cameo for a personalized greeting for you or as a gift or a birthday thing, just go to their website, Cameo.com, and order it that way. Put my name in the search bar. You'll see all the information come right up. Saves you money, saves me money if you do it directly on their site versus an app on an Apple device for Cameo. Okay. Um, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook. You know all that. And eddytrunk.com is the website. So without further ado, let's get to our interviews. Up first, Rick Emmett of Triumph. Second, Rachel Bolin of Skid Row. That's all next on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Podcast. 
sports are starting to come back, and Podcast One Sportsnet has got all the action covered with tons of different sports podcasts. There's something for everyone. Check out the Rich Eisen Show for your daily coverage, the Steve Austin Show for your favorite stories from Steve Austin's amazing career, the Deegans with Metal Militia star Brian Deegan and his extreme sports-loving family, plus many more. As sports return, be sure to tune in to all the great podcasts with Podcast One Sportsnet so you don't miss any action. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome back. It's Eddie Trunk on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We start off, as mentioned, with Rick Emmett of Triumph coming up second in just a bit. It'll be Rachel Bolin of Skid Row, a very, very deluxe expanded double dip edition. Two great interviews for you this week. I hope you enjoy them. We start with Rick Emmett right now. How are you, Rick? I'm great, Eddie. How are you? Good. How's the, you in Canada? How Are you home? Yeah, yeah. I live in uh, Burlington, which is sort of a western city suburb of Toronto. And uh, it's been great here, actually. You know, it's, it's uh, I haven't minded sort of being uh, isolated and, you know, it hasn't had too much of an effect. It's actually allowed me to become a little bit more creative, so I've been enjoying myself. Well, that's the thing. In all this pandemic time, all the artists I've been talking to all seem to have a different take. Some are really chomping at the bit to go out there and do things, and then others are enjoying the reconnect with family and not used to being home this long. Others are taking the time to do really creative things, write, record, do streaming videos what what's been the focus for you in in this time i mean you 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 were semi-retired from touring anyway weren't you yeah i had to sort of step back from touring at the beginning of 2019 so i was getting used to it and i had told my agent well you know i'll go out and i'll try a few things don't want to necessarily have to fly to gigs but if you put some stuff together that i can drive to maybe i'll try some of that and then along came the covid thing and those gigs got you know bumped and canceled and so, but I was already getting used to being off the road, anyways. So I, I don't really miss the road, and I, I mean, uh, I do miss playing uh, and and having that in, interaction with a crowd and that energy, you know. Um, but I don't miss, you know, airplanes and hotels and taxi cabs and all the rest of it, you know. Uh, and the the thing that's weird, Eddie, is like it was almost like. Uh, retirement was a, a great career move for me because Roundhill Records was putting out the Triumph stuff that said, hey, would you like us to put out all your back catalog? And I went, well, sure, that'd be great. It's nice to have somebody believe in me. So all of the albums that I made after I left Triumph, they've just digitally re-released them. And then I was sitting around and I was going, I think, you know, I, I still want to record and stuff. And I was writing tunes and when I, in 1962, I owned the Bob Dylan record that was just called Bob Dylan. It was just acoustic guitar and voice. I said, you know, all my years, I've never really done a whole album like that. So I'm going to do a project like that. So I put that out on my website. And um, then I, I was writing a book of poetry. And it looks like a publisher wants to make a deal so that I can do the book of poetry and, and a memoir. So it's like one thing led to another thing led to another thing. Before I knew it, I had like a completely full calendar. And now, of course, you know, I'm doing all of this promo, so I'm calling you. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is Strung Out Troubadours? I saw a link for that. What is is that the, the newest thing you're doing? 
No, Strung Out Troubadours was a thing. There was a guy named Dave Dunlop who played in my right. band. And he actually, when Triumph played the reunion gig in Sweden and in Oklahoma, Dave was actually in the in the Triumph band as well, playing rhythm guitar and acting vocals and stuff. So Dave and I had a little duo thing. Like a lot of times my touring, it got to the point where I was doing a lot of solo stuff and I wanted something else. And so I used a piano player for a while. And then I kind of got the itch to have a little bit more kind of a rock and roll approach. So two guitars made it a little bit more kind of um, versatile. And so Dave was the guy and we did it for you. And then I said, Hey, you know, we should do an album together and put it out. We can sell it at the merch table. And so that was the birth of the strung out troubadours. And we did three albums and uh, yeah, Roundhill bought my rights out of those. Dave still has his side of it. He, he didn't sell them. So he stands to make some more mechanicals and royalties. <laughs> Whatever there is to be made these days, right? <laughs> yeah. End of the business. No, yeah. It's no not kidding. what it once yeah. was. Uh, so I want to talk to you. I want to ask you some triumph stuff, of course. But before, but uh, before that, let's let's let me cover the reason you're calling, which you mentioned the re-release of your albums after Triumph ended for you. And I think Rick that people would probably be surprised to learn how many records there are. And there were a lot of people that sort of categorized what you did after Triumph as being. A jazz guitar, but that's not all you did. You you really ventured into a lot of different styles. So for people that, especially you know here in America, that maybe didn't follow all that closely, some of the stuff you did after Triumph, tell everybody what you did musically and how many records there are and the different journeys those records took you on. Okay, well you know settle in, folks. Make yourself a cup of coffee and relax. <laughs> this is a long story. <laughs> um, there, there was 13 that, that Roundhill made a deal for, and they ran the gamut. And uh, when I first got out of Triumph, so a little bit of sort of ancient history here, left Triumph in 88, I actually made three albums for an indie that had uh, a distribution through Universal and uh, in Canada. And um, those sort of started uh, an evolution or, a, a, you know, I don't know, a, a mutation, a change from being sort of a rocking guy to kind of being a singer-songwriter guy. Uh, and that took me from about 89 through to about 95, 96. And then I'd sort of had enough. I, I was, uh, I mean, the, the industry had changed. Uh, the, you know, it, the, the whole thing of being sort of in an arena rock band that it's kind of converted to an MTV band, uh, you know, through the 80s, that was dying off. And there was the rise of Nirvana and Soundgarden and, so radio had gone in a different direction and um the triumph thing just seemed like it was over for me you know so um i i yeah, left made those three records and then i got to the point where i went okay this doesn't really seem to be working for me either and it's not really why i left triumph in the first place i just want to indulge myself creatively artistically and i don't care if i make money or not um this is not a question of chasing a career. This is a question of sort of chasing what uh, art and music and, and the muse is, is pulling me towards, calling me, you know. So first one was a classical guitar instrumental record. Next one in very short succession was a blues rocking kind of a thing, because really that was like where I cut my teeth when I was first learning electric guitar. It was the whole Eric Clapton Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck thing, the guys out of the Yardbirds, 
and then back into the Chicago Blues and down the Delta, all of the, you know, the, the same path that those guys went. As soon as you discover them, you go back down the path that they did too. So, you know, um, and then the next record was Archtop Jazz because that was the next thing that happened in my life. I went to college for one semester in a jazz music program, but at the time I was, you know, heavily, deeply into everything from West Montgomery to Charlie Bird to Joe Pass. And so, uh, yeah, you know, swinging and uh, that comes out of playing blues. And so those were the first three records I made real quick. And, um, it sort of became a trilogy in people's minds that I'd made these three records. And then I went, okay, it's time for some singing and singer-songwriter stuff again. And I made some of those. And then I started up the thing with Dave Dunlop, and we did three of the Strong Out Troubadours records. And around this time, there was smooth jazz was kind of happening on the radio. And one thing led to another, and they started playing my tunes on smooth jazz radio. And so if they weren't really smooth jazz, they were, <laughs> they were kind of soft enough and jazzy enough and artistic enough that they went, okay. And then I started winning awards for being the smooth jazz guitar player of the year and got to, you know, hang out with George Benson at the awards show. And, you know, all of this kind of stuff is going on in my life. And um, then, you know, along the way, I made a record with a friend of mine named Mike Shotton, who was in a band called Funk Groove. And, we did this very sort of heavy progressive kind of rock band record around 2007 called Airtime Liberty Manifesto. And uh, so that's in the mix. For those that like hard rock, that's in there too. And I, so anyways, you know, Roundhill takes all this stuff. And um, they said to me, we're going to put all these records out on your birthday this year, Rick, on July 10th. And I go, well, guys, middle of July, I don't think that's a good time to put out a Christmas record. Because, of course, in the pile of records... There was also a Christmas record and a, a Latin record that I'd done with two other guys. and So they sort of picked the 11 and, you know, put those out. And, the, okay, now I'm tired and I need you to ask a question so I can catch my breath. <laughs> Come on now, you're not that old. <laughs> you still got plenty <laughs> left in you, Rick. Well, well, I do have a question because I've had you on my show over the years uh, and of course, I had, we had that great time a few years ago where I came up to, to Toronto and reunited you with with Gil and uh, and um, uh, <laughs> Levine, the troublemaker. Mike. Yeah, Mike. Yes. Of course, what am I saying? Drawing a blank. <laughs> Gil, we all we had that great day where we went on the radio live, and you guys came back together for me. We had a great day that day. I loved it, and I still appreciate so much you guys doing that. But. I remember prior to that, you had called into my show once and you had done a record not very long ago, but I don't think it was under your own name. And I remember significantly there was a guest spot on it from Alex Lifeson. What record was that? Okay, so that was a little bit later. That was 2016. And uh, there was an American guy uh, out of the uh, sort of, uh, ooh, I think it was Cleveland. Maybe not. I can't remember what area he lived in. Anyways. He was kind of functioning like an A&R man for Mascot Pro Vogue, which is a kind of a European-based label that um, guys like Joe Bonamassa has record deals with him and Warren Haynes and, and Robin Ford and those. Like, it's a real guitar-oriented kind of label. And um, uh, so th they made me an offer, and, and it was a pretty good one, uh, to, to make a record. And um, so I did, and there was enough of a budget that I got um, Alex to play guitar on it on a couple of things, and uh, James Labrie of Dream Theater sang right. on a couple of things. 
And um, it was a lot of fun. And I felt, you know, without tooting my horn too loud, I really felt it was a really good record, like very solid. And the way I'd approached it was I put a real band together. Dave Dunlop was in it, Steve Skingley, my bass player, Paul DeLong on drums. And um, so it was a real... Uh, ensemble rock kind of a record, but it was right up mascots. They have a sort of a sub level called a label called Pro Vogue, and uh, it was really in that bluesy R and B rock kind of ballpark. And um, I was really proud of it. And they put it out, and you know, I think they sold like you know eleven or twelve thousand units out of the box. And then it was kind of like they just. It was like they gave up. You know, they did some lyric videos, and the contract had called for them to to do some real videos and some real promotion, and they really hadn't kind of lived up to the contract. And so then, you know, when they came to me and said, "All right, you know, we're, we're it's we're supposed to pick up the option for the second record, and um, you know, we, we don't want to have to give you the money that the contract calls for," and I said, "You know what? I don't want it. Like, just let me out of the contract. Let's let's just." drop it and I'll move on, you know. So that was the end of that with Mascot Provo. But that record was called Res 9, R-E-S-9. Right. Right. And uh, the, the band was called Resolution 9. It was like Rick Emmett, my initials, R-E, Solution 9. The, the band was kind of, you know, named Solution 9. So it was Resolution 9, ha-ha. Anyhow, <laughs> it was, it, I loved making the record. And here's the sweet thing, you know, just for your listeners, uh, when I was going to do it, I wanted to go back to Metalworks and I wanted to go into studio on, you know, just like the old days. And Gilmore said, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you, come on in, you write your own ticket here. And I, and I, when I went to pay him, he said, no, no, I don't want your money. And I said, no, you know, I, I'm, I'll pay the bill. I, you know, I've got a legitimate budget and everything here. He goes, nope, don't want your money. You know, and I said, well, let's give the money to charity. And he went, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So it was great. It was kind of like, coming full circle and and picking up a loop of Gilmore in there it was great was one of the reasons well well two quick things on this first of all there's a lot of people that just assume because Triumph and Rush are both from Toronto both trios that you guys had a lot of uh crossover during the decades know each other very well that's not entirely true I, I i guess you've done some stuff with alex but i think it was was mike or gill told me you guys actually never even did a show with them ever in your history so the idea that two toronto bands trios around the same time had a lot of history together is actually not accurate is it no although if you took the two histories especially in the early days of the two bands, you would see that there was a lot of overlap, like that they would break in markets. And then, you know, we were kind of riding on their coattails and we were able to go in to markets in, in Texas and Ohio and Michigan. And they'd already had some success and broken some radio. And so it made it kind of a lot easier for us. So we always felt I always felt, a, a, you know, an indebtedness to them. And when the in the early days of the band, Triumph was playing in a bar, and, you know, uh, it's kind of been made famous by the fact that Mike Myers had it in his, you know, um, movie where he played uh, the, the roadie, you know, I'm Not Worthy. And Wayne's this, World. Yeah, and Wayne's World was like, 
the gas works, he called it, and it was this bar. Now, in Toronto, it was way more of a sort of a divey bar on Yonge Street, small kind of beer joint, but every band that was on its way up was going to play that place, the gas works. So um, Rush had played there, and I'd seen them there. Um, Back in the day when they had uh, John Rutsey was the drummer, mm-hmm. and and Getty used to paint his fingernails black and stuff. It was it was great, <laughs> and Alex was amazing. He was fantastic in those days. Anyways, when Triumph played there, he Alex came and he was at the bar having a beer, and you know I got to talk to him, and and uh, so our friendship started up. But I was never really close to the other guys. I mean, everybody knows that Neil was an extremely private kind of guy. And, you know, even when there were industry events and things like Neil, he wouldn't, he he might show up for, you know, a minute and a half on stage and then he'd be gone. You know, you'd never see him. So, uh, and, and Getty, you know, he, he's, uh, I I don't really know him either. The, the way that most Canadian people know Getty is because he's got seats right behind home plate for the Blue Jays home (laughs) games. And when they're televised, you can see Getty sitting in the second row there. Keeping yeah. score and having a hot dog, and <laughs> so we don't we don't see Getty much either. But Alex gets around. Like Alex, uh, he's owned a, co- uh, a club in Toronto, and he would sometimes get up on stage and play with the Dexters. And so, yeah, you know, he's 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 a bit more of a kind of an outgoing kind of dude. Plays in golf tournaments and things. And is one of the reasons Rick that you initially left Triumph back then was to pursue. The, uh, all these genres of music you've done on these solo records that are being re-released it, it was was that the catalyst for you did you have an itch to show other sides of your playing and to be able to have a lot more creative freedom and go into these different places musically yes <laughs> i mean the short answer is yes um yeah. the long answer is you know when, when you've played in a, in a rock band that's had you know an international record deal and you've done really well and you're you know you've been on mtv and stuff there's always going to be pressure from, you know, agents and managers and record labels and stuff that they don't want you to change, you know, that they don't want you to change from being what you've been established at into some kind of, you know, David Bowie character overnight. That's a guy that's going to change his image and and his direction with every album and stuff that, you know, I wasn't, you know, my career hadn't been predicated on being that kind of an artist. So, you know, they're trying to keep you in the, the mold that they've created for you and that they know they can exploit. I mean, I can remember the first album, uh, you know, shopping it around and trying to make record deals. And some people even like A&R men at record companies going, well, geez, you're, you're almost 40 now, you know, like you're old. We, you know, we, we can't do, we, we don't want to do a record deal with an old guy, you know, and you're going, 40 not old, you know, but of course that's the way some people in the, in show business think, you know, and then of course uh, in Canada, there's record company people in there saying, "Well, we need hard rock songs. You got to have songs that we can take to FM radio." And I'm going, guys, FM radio is changing. You know, like, uh, can I sort of? I want to try and and start evolving towards being more of a singer songwriter type guy. And they're going, "Oh, geez, not too fast, Rick. Don't do that too fast. We need rock records." And especially the second of the three records that I made it was called Ipso Facto. The, it was a real schizo record. It had sort of three personalities on it. It had the singer-songwriter that I wanted to be, the finger-style jazz uh, guitarist and, and 
uh, you know, acoustic folk kind of guitar pieces, things that I wanted to do. And then the fact that the record company said, no, no, you got to rock, you got to give us rock. So then there were like six songs that were really hard rock, but the record was schizo, you know. So it took me a while. And it, it the other thing, Eddie, is vanity. You know, you have, like <laughs> once you've sort of been the kind of guy that's like, you know, you're having a lot of success and you, in order to go to shows, there's limousines and, and uh, you know, there's, yeah, you had to put in a, a a a periphery on your property, you know, get a guard dog and put a camera at the front door because you know you're that that level of popularity. It never really mattered all that much to me, but it was it was my life. It was part of who I was at the time. And then eventually, you're thinking, okay, I think I want to make some jazz records. And there's people going, "Are you <laughs> nuts, Emmett? Like jazz is like one percent of the marketplace." Like, you're cutting yourself off at the knees. And I would go, yeah, I don't care. Like, uh, what I want to do is sort of pursue the things that uh, matter to me. I've only got this one life to live. And, um, you know, I I think I'm going to do what I can to make it mine instead of, you know, having... uh, And as much as I respect audiences, you know, sometimes I think you got to poke them a little bit and go, no, sorry, I'm, I'm... I'm trying something else. I've indulged you. I've given you what you want. Now you've got to sort of indulge me. I'm going to try try something of my own. Well, yeah, that that by nature is what being an artist is about. You know, you don't want to always paint with the same colors every single time you paint. And there are those that at, at some point just want to go out and try that, especially after they had the big success and established that already. Rick, just for people listening who want to check out all this music that you made outside of Triumph, and part of this reissue is it is it being reissued in physical form? Is it available as streaming? Where can people actually get it? Uh, well, I would think it's available at all of the uh, standard digital retail kinds of download places, iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. It's also streaming now for the first time in its life, the whole catalog at places like Spotify and Pandora and all of those things. And um, if they want more information on it all, they can check out Round Hill Records, but they can also find links and things from my store at rickemmett.com. So um, there's plenty of places. They, you know, they could just Google up Rick Emmett, and eventually they're going to be able to find their way to the stuff. And it's all just digital download at this point. But I think uh, you know, Roundhill will kind of be looking at it and saying, just as they've done with the Triumph catalog, uh, which you know they've done vinyl f- for some of the records there. I think they're they're doing a big box set that's going to come early next year. So you know I think they might look at my stuff and depending on how it does, they might say, yeah, you know what, let's let's do something in vinyl or let's let's do a run of CDs or hey Rick, do you want to sort of do a compilation package of some of these things and we'll, we'll maybe remaster it up and we'll put something out. So, but I think they're probably just, you know, this is a litmus test. Obviously if it, if it doesn't sell great, then they'll probably go, yeah, Rick, it's really been nice knowing you. <laughs> uh, the last thing on the solo stuff is the, you know, in all the years that you've done that, and I followed your career pretty closely that you went from playing to huge stages around the world with Triumph. And then you went into that world and you changed gears musically a little bit. You did a different mix of music and it found, you found yourself, I'm sure playing in much smaller venues 
and probably in places and ways you had not done in a very long time. I mean, I know having myself having heard about, you know, people reach out to me and say, hey, Rick Emmett is doing this or he's doing a charity gig at somebody's house or he's doing a jazz club or he's doing this. How was that for you in all these years where going from, you know, playing the Normo domes of the world with a big rock band to then suddenly finding yourself in these much more intimate settings? Did you embrace it? I did. Yeah, I loved it. And, you know, I mean, uh, I, I don't want to sound like uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to make it sound like I did. I, I, I truly did. But I think one of the things that made it feel so normal and natural and comfortable for me was when you, the triumph rise to success had been pretty meteoric, more or less. It had happened pretty fast. We started in 75, and and then uh, between the three of us, the attitude was, hey, you know, we don't really want to open for anybody. We want to have a big show, so we're going to put together our own big show, have our own sound and lights, our own trucks. We're, we're going to roll this big production around, and so we're going to, we had to play theaters and then uh, arenas almost right away. So by the time we were into 1978-79, the band had become a, an arena headlining kind of act. We, we hardly opened for anybody ever. We would play our own smaller theater shows and, and go up from there. So, you know, when my life changed and I ended up becoming more of an intimate kind of acoustic performance um, and you're playing smaller places, it's almost like I was finally getting to play, you know, the 150, 300-seat kind of rooms um, that, you know, I'd missed uh, almost entirely on the way up. And in a way, because of the music that I wanted to make, and I mean, your listeners can probably tell I'm a a bit of a sort of Irish Blarney storyteller, uh, you know, I like to, to talk between songs. When I was in Triumph, Mike was the guy that sort of did all the talking between songs. Mike and Gil, I never talked. All I ever yeah, did, true. yeah, all I ever did was sing and play. That's what I did. So it was kind of fun to be able to make the connection. And I'm just going to say this for the benefit of you know whoever's listening. When you're a performer and you're playing in front of you know. I don't know, Us Festival, 250,000 people, or, you know, uh, the Houston Astrodome, and and there's, you know, 100,000 people there. Like, you you don't really see them. The lights come on, and it's a huge stage, and you're a long way back from from where the barricade is and stuff. There's not really any connection being made. But when you're in a small club, and there's people that are sitting, like, literally within two or three feet of the stage... Uh, then you really feel like it's almost like it's a living room circumstance and you really feel the connection. And, you know, I'll tell you, if, if, if I could play for a hundred thousand people and I could feel like, you know, I had a hundred thousand people in the palm of my hand and the U2 do it and, and, and Rolling Stones and, you know, there's lots and lots of people that have that ability to literally have the, the giant crowd in the palm of your hand. And in Triumph's case, we had some moments where that happened and it's an amazing feeling. It's an unbelievably great feeling, but it's exactly the same feeling if it's only 55 people out there. You know, if they're, if you can hear a pin drop and they're in the same place uh, musically, artistically, they've connected to the same thing that you're putting out, then that exchange of energy is happening and that loop is there and it's a beautiful thing. It's, 
I don't know. I mean, uh, to me, it's like communion. It's like it's like you're in church and something spiritual is going on. It's a beautiful, beautiful feeling, and it doesn't need to be thousands of people. It's it, it works with tens, you know, twenties, hundreds. You know, it works. Mm. What can, tell the audience if you can give us an update on the Triumph Doc? Uh, Sam and his crew were came to my house probably about a year ago at this point and asked me to do a little interview for it, which was I was honored to do. And I know there's been various events and things that have been going on that uh, have been filmed to lead up to the documentary coming out. Where do things stand? What's the timetable for it to come out? What do you know about it? Uh, well, I've seen a second rough cut, and I've seen your lovely face and heard oh, your boy. nice words, and <laughs> you're in there. You didn't end up on the cutting room floor. Usually um, I do. <laughs> so, well, that's good. That happens to the best of us, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> I've had plenty of my finest moments happen off camera. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, they, they were intending to try and uh, – uh, get a big splash during the Toronto International Film Festival this fall. And uh, the film festival has obviously changed because of COVID times. And so everybody's schedules have been screwed up, including bangers in their ability to sort of be editing the thing and stuff because they couldn't even get into their offices and had to shut them down. And so people were working from home and renting editing suites and, you know, whatever. So, um, I do think they're pretty close to being finished. The last communication I had by email with Sam Dunn and Mark Ricciardelli, the the two principal guys, the the uh, director and producer and uh, the uh, kind of cameraman editor guy, uh, you know, they're ready to sort of put it to bed. They're doing all of the final things that get done with films, uh, looping and syncing and and all of that. And um, there's animation and sequences and things that are in it. Um, so, you know, I still think they're looking for the fall. And, uh, you know, it might just end up going direct to Netflix or something. I don't know. They they had a ZZ Top one that sort of ended up on Netflix and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they may just follow the same route for distribution of that um, because of the COVID implications playing out in the marketplace. But I don't know. It's out of my hands. It's not my thing. It's theirs. So, you know, whatever happens, happens. It was surreal doing that thing, by the way. Like, I mean, it was like, nice to see you on there and talking, and they've got all kinds of other people in there. They they had Nugent. The last cut I saw, they got Ted Nugent doing some stuff. And John Five they said some really lovely things about my guitar playing. That was a lovely surprise. It was really cool. Um, but it's a surreal thing that you're sort of, it's like, hey, Rick, this is your life, you know, or at least this is a part of your life from way back in the past. And and uh, it's weird that you kind of go, oh, right, yeah. And then, of course, you're getting different perspectives. I mean, I know what it was like because I lived it, but, you know, that's only my perspective of it. It's not even necessarily what Mike and Gill's perspective was, and, you know, not yours, not Ted Nugent's. <laughs> you know, so it's it's kind of funny when you see all these other folks talking about it, and uh, and now you're in the room, you know, and it's some it's it's almost like you're getting to go to your own funeral or something. You know, it's like, wow, this is what they're going to say when I die. This is this will be in my <laughs> you know my memorial. 
Anyhow, yeah. I guess. Well, I guess that's the case. Yeah, I could see you taking it from that perspective, and I think everybody's perspective on any band is different based on how they were exposed to it and what their take was on it. I mean, me being living in New Jersey my whole life, I think there's probably a different view on Triumph than somebody who maybe is from San Antonio and Texas, where you guys had so much early success and were like, you know, such a bigger act regionally. So it, it I think that there is a lot of that. I got to ask you this real quick before I let you go. The, yep. the the question, like the last time Triumph played, and when I was with you guys a couple years ago in Toronto, everybody seems really content and happy with what's going on in their life now. Gil with the studio, Mike had just come from Jamaica or wherever he was, very tan, and you you doing your thing. Everybody seems very content in you know, having sort of retired Triumph. But is there any scenario you see if this film is successful and elevates awareness for the band that you guys would play together again? Well, I mean, I still actively do a lot of playing. Like, for example, before I got on the radio with you here, I was um, practicing guitar because I'm going to do a session on Monday with a friend of mine where it's kind of like a Ray Charles bluesy country kind of a thing. So, you know, and I did a country thing uh, last week, a little video thing that'll be up on Zoom with a guitar player named Nathan Whitney, who's the lead guitar player in Thomas Rett's band in the States. And he was a former student of mine, and he's an unbelievably great country player. So I've, I've you know, I have these things that I do. They, they, I, I'm going to be doing one of the rock and roll fantasy camp things again on Zoom you know, later on in August. So there's things where I kind of keep my chops up. Um, but, uh, you know, in Triumph, Gil doesn't really play. He doesn't, you know, like he had to really work his chops back up. We did a thing for the uh, for the documentary where we played three songs as a, as a surprise at a fan fest thing. And he had to work really hard for about a month and a half to kind of get himself back up into playing shape to be able to make it through three songs, you know. Mm. So, and I don't think Mike plays much either on, on his own, although I think it's a little bit easier to get your 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 road chops back up on a bass that than it is if you're going to be the you know lead guitarist lead singer or drummer lead singer so and that's part of it too is the singing like i don't know if i like I, I, you can change the keys of songs you can tune your guitars down a little bit and you know um you can do it but um there's a party also that kind of goes well you know it's it's it, it's a lot of work and I think Gil probably looks at it and goes, yeah, you know what? I, I think I'd rather go play golf. Sorry. You know, <laughs> and he's not saying sorry, you know, to, to himself, you know, that he's saying sorry to the fans that might want it. He's saying sorry to us. And I say, don't say sorry to me, you know, because I get it. I, and I would never want to force somebody to do something that they didn't really want to do, you know, and a lot of drummers get to Gil's age and stage and they can't really play a full set now. Anyways, their backs are bad. You know, they got arthritis in their elbows. Drummers really do take uh, a punishing kind of, um, you know, it's a, the lifestyle is very punishing. And, yeah, um, yeah I mean, you know, I, I think I added many years to my ability to do what I do by getting out of a rock band and not having to jump off drum risers and not having to sing at the top of my lungs night after night after night with all of the flash powder in the air, you know, like, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever take it back out on the road again, Eddie. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, and, and I respect where you're coming from because my biggest problem is you. I always have this thing where you got to know when to say when. And I would much rather have my last memory of a band that I loved being that they were strong and great and sounding good than, man, they were really creaky and the singer couldn't sing and the drummer was missing uh, beats and it was just a mess and a train wreck. So you got to know when to say when, and I respect that. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of bands that don't know when to say when, and there's many that are out there that probably shouldn't be still. And, you know, they're using electronics and running tracks and lip syncing and what that that's, there's no excuse for that. That's maddening and crazy to me. I won't accept that. So I, I respect the hell out of people that know when to say when, and, and you guys, have been very content with that and uh you know the the last thing i promise the last time you did play when you did sweden and you did oklahoma and i was at that show at rocklahoma hosted it did you do looking back on those what which i believe are the final ever full triumph performances were you happy with those performances or you did you think in retrospect they could have been better uh, a little bit of both. I mean, it was obviously uh, uh, extremely satisfying on a sort of a emotional, spiritual, internal kind of level for us that, you know, we were coming full circle and making this thing happen. And the thing that we did for the documentary, and people are going to see that footage, that was an extremely amazing, fulfilling kind of thing. I mean, imagine if you can get 200 of your greatest fans from all over the world, and they're in a warehouse, and they're watching a movie, and they, they have no idea that the band's going to play, and the movie sort of gets to its end, the scrim of the of the projective screen drops, and there's the band with its with its gear, and we start playing the song, and they went insane and you know it the the energy in the room was just it was it was crazy it was like a nuclear reaction and it and it was an amazing thing and and, you know the cameras captured it all so that kind of a thing is amazing now you know um you asked more about sweden and and rocklahoma those shows uh, like in Sweden, they, they had cameras rolling and they were shooting it for Swedish thing and there was a DVD made of it and stuff. But, you know, it's one of those kinds of things where, well, they didn't exactly have the monitors 100% together. And, oh, the first two songs, my the mic that was on my guitar speaker slipped and fell off of the stand. And so they didn't even have my guitar in the PA for the first song. And you're going like, oh, you know, geez, you know, these kinds of things, they do happen, but it's a drag when it happens. And it's, you know, it's a one-off, you know, but if you're on the road and you get, you know, 12 songs, 12 gigs in a row, then, you know, there's a, there's much less chance that something bad is going to happen. Everybody gets kind of gets in a groove and, and those kinds of things don't happen, you know, but, um, and in Sweden, I had a migraine the afternoon before we had to go on, so I had to get a doctor and I had to get a shot of vitamin B, and, you know, had to take a bunch of Advil, and so I was mm. a little groggy on stage that night. Like, I made it through, and I did it okay, and I think I sang okay for a guy that was, you know, a little, <laughs> a little medicated, but, you know, um, it, I, you know, I wish I could have done it and been... You know, 100%, you know. Uh, Rocklahoma, if you'll recall, 
they had a tornado that came and ripped through the thing the night before we played. So That's it was every kind year, of that like, thing. <laughs> yeah. Every we, year, we, that we, thing, we you're dealing there, with that. We were thinking, oh, God, they're going to be, you know, the hope the PA tower didn't get blown over. I, I yeah. hope they've solidified it, you know, all the tents that are around the perimeter, you know. Um, and it wasn't bad. It was fine. But, uh, and we, I think we played better at Rocklahoma than we did in Sweden. Uh, but it was hot and it was windy and it was weird. And um, the other thing was now we knew that was the last one. And I think Gil had my, he might even said to us, you know, guys, this has been very interesting. He brought his family down to Oklahoma. He had his daughter there and, and I think his son was there too. And, and his wife. And, and I think um, he's, he kind of said, you know, I just want my kids to see me, but this is going to, because this is going to be it. I, I, I think I want to hang it up. I don't want to do anymore. And I don't think I want to take it out on the road. Now, is it possible that Gilmour might change his mind? Yes. <laughs> Have I seen him change his mind? Yes, sure. But generally, I kind of feel like, you know, that was the end. And so because it had that feeling that this might be the very end, you know, there was a kind of a, that's like a bittersweet thing, you know. I just wanted to mention this too, by the way, before, you know, you, you let me go. Um I did a couple of those rock cruises, and I didn't headline. But the last one I did, I think they had Sammy Hager was on it, and um, and I think Peter Frampton was one of the headliners. And Mm -hmm. Frampton, when I saw him play, I was so impressed because musically – he was excellent. He sang great. The band was unbelievable. Like, clearly, he doesn't move the way he used to move. And, you know, it, the guy that was the every little girl's pinup dream back in the Frampton Comes Alive era with all his golden locks and stuff, I mean, you know, he's this kind of bald, little skinny guy now, you know. And apparently now he's got a health problem where he's done his final tour and, and yeah. it's, it's finished for him. He can't really physically carry. But, you know, for for a for a guy that was carrying around a bit of a physical uh, disability he sounded and played really really good so i do think there are some artists that are able to make transitions and and um they still deliver fantastic stuff in their old age you know it was great to be able to go and see bb king in his 70s and his 80s you know like cuz that's B.B. King. You know, like, yeah, no, I, I yeah, agree with you. he's sitting on a chair and he's got diabetes, okay, but still, that's B.B., you know. And he wasn't too bad. He was all right. He could still kind of do the blues shouting thing. and yeah. So, you know, th- there are some musicians that can do it, and and, yeah. and then there's others that are maybe, you know, yeah, as too you long, say, you know, long at the using party, a little bit I too say. much of the digital technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely on Frampton, though. I saw him at NAMI. He was incredible. Hey, Rick, I got to wrap up. I, I appreciate yeah. so much the time. Everybody check out Rick's catalog, available now on Roundhill. Can't wait for the documentary. You know where to get me. We'll do more when the film comes out, I'm sure. And, uh, and be well, you and your family, okay? We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Eddie. Same to you. Thanks to Rick Emmett. Much appreciated. Uh, looking forward to that Triumph doc. That should be great. And check out his solo music, which is now available on the uh, digital platforms he talked about. We'll be right back with Skid Row's co-founding member, Rachel Bolin, talking rock music and talking soap. Yeah, his new business, Soap. That's all next. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
Welcome back. Eddie Trunk here with you on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. We now check in with Skid Row's co-founding member and bassist, Rachel Boland, talking about a bunch of stuff, including his new line of soap called Dirty Rocker. Here's Rachel. It's been a long time since I've talked to this guy on the air. I saw him, I think, last on the Monsters of Rock cruise where they kind of did a quick hitter. One big performance in the uh, in the theater, and then they were they were just vanished. <laughs> they destroyed the theater on the ship and then just poof, seemingly disappeared. But they left a mark, that's for sure. Rachel Boland of Skid Row joins me right now. How are you, brother? It's been a while. Hey, man, we're still looking for the uh, the bill to for all the destruction in that theater, but that's why we get off the boat so quick. <laughs> it, well, was, it was a hell of a performance, but yeah, you guys were kind of scarce. That's how you like to do it, right? Come, come in stealth, you know, do the show, play the hits and you're out of there. Yep. Don't leave any scars. Just get out of there, man. <laughs> it was fun. That was the first monsters of rock cruise we did. And it was a blast, man. Yeah, you guys were great. You had that theater packed, man. It was unbelievable, and it was the one performance you did on the ship, and it was it was really good. So in all the decades I've known you, I never thought, among the things that, I'll, that we'll talk about, I never thought we'd, I'd be calling and having a conversation with you on the radio about hygiene <laughs> and soap. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's surprising me as well, man. It's uh, just something that happened, I guess, when you get older. Well, well, let's talk about, let's start with this because you have a new project called Dirty Rocker Soap. I know you sent me some, it didn't get to me in time, but I look forward to, to trying it out. And, and, you know, Rach, all these artists, as we know, and many of them are friends of you and I, they sell coffee or they sell liquor or they sell beer. They put their name on something. Tell me how you got into the soap business. Well, it's strange. Like it was, it's just from touring as much as we do. And it, I, um, you know, a lot of times hotel soap just like dry you out or, you know, and there's a lot of allergies that come with it sometimes, not all of them, but sometimes. And I was like, Oh man, if I could only just have a soap that I like that I could carry with me. And it just, I never really found it. And my friend was making soap and I used hers and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So that's what I carried around. And this has been going on for like a year and a half. I'm like, oh, let me come up with a name and whatnot. And that's what I did. I just secured the name and came up with some formulas with her. And um, with all this downtime we have now, I launched the company. And it was just uh, purely by coincidence. Otherwise, it may not have been out for another two years. And the response has been overwhelming, man. Like, just doing interviews about soap is really funny. I got the text from you the other day and you're like, Hey dude, I heard you got soap. Let's talk about it. And I was like, all right, cool. You know? And uh, so that, that's what kind of made it happen. And it's, it's been fun, man. Just coming up with different, it's a, an, another avenue to be creative and another avenue to, um, uh, you know, to, to interact with Skid Row fans. And they're coming up with ideas that they shoot me. And um, I may not get back to them right away, but I'm, all, I'm listening to all the ideas. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And like I said, an overwhelming response. Well, I mean, I saw you mention it on your Instagram. And, and, and then I, and I wasn't quite sure if it's just something that you were actually doing or just something that you were, you know, promoting for somebody else or what. And, and, and so I saw it there. And then what happened was I did, I did some sort of like, um, 
tutorial online for uh for people like who want to learn about broadcasting and this woman was on the zoom and she said to me you know i'm trying to start a podcast and i'm trying to understand how to get people to to listen and i talked to rachel bolin about his soap or i mentioned his soap and i said to her wait a minute wait a minute so Rachel's actually selling this open. Then that's when I reached out to you because she brought it up to me. And I just thought it was uh, was really interesting because, you know, there's a difference between, as you know, just throwing your name on something and letting them brand it with you or your band versus actually being hands on with it. No pun intended, but it sounds like you're really hands on with this. Yeah, absolutely. This isn't a licensing thing or uh, a situation like that at all. This is something that that I, I've put a lot of time into and uh with my friend uh Jeannie Bassone who uh helped me formulate some stuff because she's been doing soap for a, uh longer than I have and then uh my girlfriend comes up with formulas and we just try it out and if we like it we hope that other people like it and that's when I put it out and everything's all natural what we do and you know it's it, Man, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun because you feel like a mad scientist sometimes. Sometimes you're like, oh, what if we mix this with this? And you make it and you may love it or you may hate it. But it, it, it's just been a lot of fun. And, you know, can, it's growing quickly. So I can't complain about that. Can I can I ask you something that may seem like a really dumb question, but I really don't know the answer to this? What What is yeah. soap? Like what, like, like, I, like I'll give you an example, a friend of mine, um, actually my cousin sells paint for a living. And one day we're sitting around having a few beers and I just, I thought for a second, I took a step back and go, what the fuck is paint? Like you just mix a bunch <laughs> of chemicals. Like you think about it, like what is yeah, paint? Yeah. Right. But, but we all yeah. use soap well, every day. Like what makes a bar of soap is what are the ingredients? What do you do? Well, if you're saying just a, a like a, regular block of unscented soap you have uh, your oils or fats like i use coconut oil and olive oil and then you have to use sodium hydroxide which is lye and you use it in in the formula that works up against the oils it, it's all pretty simple um but you could really mess up a batch if you don't get the uh the mass right and um that's basically what it is. I mean, you look at Fight Club and it's fat and lie. <laughs> That's what they're making their soap out of. And it, it's not quite that simple. There's a formula to it, but it's, uh, that's what soap is, man. And some distilled water. Uh, you so, know, and there you have a hunk of soap in three weeks. So this, so this soap is called Dirty Rocker. And, and you, and you're, so you are actually making this, like you and your girlfriend and your friend, like you are actually mixing these ingredients, trying them, and then you come up with a scent or a feel that you feel really works. And then that's the one you say, okay, we're going to box this up and this is what we're going to sell. Because when I asked you to send me some, you had said that it wasn't even ready yet. I guess it's doing so well you're out of it. Well, that's one part. Yeah, because we sell out quickly. We make it in small batches, which are getting bigger each each run. But um, from the time you make your soap, from the time you pour it, so the time you can sell it is about three to three and a half weeks the way that we do it. Um, so that's why I, I could send it to you. And I'm like, but don't use it yet because you're going to use it. And it's just going to be, it's going to fall apart in your hands. You know, it's going to, you're going to get a lot of studs and then you, your bar of soap is going to be gone. You know, there's, but so you have to wait for it to cure. It, it's, it's kind of like cement. You can't walk on it until it's 
completely cured, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, you just have to wait, and and there it is. That that's soap making. Wow! And are you actually doing this in? And like, I know you live in uh, in Nashville now, but are you actually doing this in your house, or is this being done? You farm this out somewhere? No, it's it's uh, everything is done here in my house and at my friend's house, and she lives right down the road. And how can people get this? Where's the website? If they want to order it, what what do they do? Where do they go? Uh, DirtyRockerSoapCo.com. And, and is you your get, uh, to that directly or through uh, the Instagram, which is Dirty Rocker Soap. And is your goal like where do you want to go with this? Do you do you want to make it bigger? I'm assuming like if it keeps doing well, you're going to run with it. Would you like to? you know, farm it out to have a company deal with it? Or are you just, it's just really more like at this level that you want to keep it? No, I would love for it to get, get larger. I just, it's all about quality control. I don't want anything to change. You know, I don't want it to be mass produced to the point where it's just, it, it, it strays too far from what we're doing now. You know, um, if, it were to get get to the point where uh, huge distribution, it would. It's going to take a while because I'm not going to let it go out and not be as good as it is now. Do you know anybody else in the music world making like anything like this, or have you really found the the hole in the market? <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know anyone that's doing it, and that was kind of my motivation too, because you know everyone, like you were saying, everyone has a coffee or, or a booze or a beer and hot sauce and i was just like man what isn't everybody doing and that was kind of a, a catalyst as well i just wanted to try something different you know me dude i always like to take the road less traveled <laughs> <laughs> go against the wind <laughs> this time um, it was so it was so little travel that i needed a machete to make a road you know what i mean <laughs> What's going on with the record, man? I mean, I, I finally had a chance to see you guys. The one time I got a chance to see you with ZP was on that cruise and that performance. And I know you, you know, I've been in touch with Snake and Scotty, and I know you guys have been, you know, working a lot. And then this pandemic hit. What's been the impact on the record and where does things stand with a, a new Skid Row record? Well, we're we're still, you know, like you said, the pandemic hit and we're all still kind of coming up for air and trying to figure this all out. But the 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 making of the record kind of came to a screeching halt for a couple of reasons. For the pandemic, one, and two, we had a bunch of songs recorded and, and then all got on a Zoom call and picked out the ones we didn't really feel strongly about. <coughs> Excuse me. So now we're back in the writing phase. And we're just writing, and, and there's no real rush for anything anymore because, you know, who knows how long this is going to last. So we're just we're putting stuff together, um, sending ideas to each other because none of us live in the same state. <laughs> you know, we got California, Tennessee, Georgia, New York, and the U.K. So it's uh, it, it's pretty challenging but everyone's got a setup at their house or a setup at their disposal that we could throw ideas around to each other and then um i'll take them in put a quick rough mix on it here at the studio and we all listen to it and make changes and it's just you know it's funny my friend and i were talking and we're the same age and i'm like you know for new guys like like 
guys in bands that are younger these days, this is probably nothing like writing through the over the internet, Zoom songwriting and just sending each other ideas. For us, it's really different. We were at the age, okay, I have an idea. It'll be there on a cassette in a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. And we all can't get together in, in a rehearsal room because we live so far apart. But we're, uh, this is uncharted territory for us, but we're, we're making it through. But uh, for next year, we are, we have a world tour that's scheduled. Hopefully it happens. Um, you know, we're, we're just seeing if this pandemic thins out and we could, uh, we're not going to put any of our fans in danger. We're not going to put ourselves in danger, but the plan for next year is a um, 30th anniversary slave to the grind tour. Um, like I said, a world tour is planned. We'll do the album in its entirety, and then we're going to do a bunch of stuff to coincide with it. Uh, we're, we're pretty psyched. Um, and, and the shows are booked. We just, we're keeping our fingers crossed that everything is, uh, going to come to pass. Well, you guys were on, uh, you guys were going to be part of that tour with rat and Kiefer and slaughter that should have been out now. It had to be a, that, that would have been really the first large-scale touring like that that you guys did at least in america in quite a while so it had to be a bummer to see that come down yeah it was weird because the the sales started strong and then boom it hit and and now that that tour i believe has been canceled um all of our other stuff has been pushed to next year and that includes the states and europe so it'll be cool to go out there and do so uh to the grind top to bottom that'll be fun well yeah i mean gosh it's hard to believe it's been 30 years and of course last year was 30 years from the debut album you know as i'm sure you're well aware your former singer went out and played the the full record sebastian did that and is going to continue to do it um you guys did not do anything really to mark the debut record's 30th anniversary what are your thoughts about all that was that one just one you didn't want to tackle or the timing didn't work out the timing really didn't work out. Yeah, that that was it. And and we were planning. Uh, we had so much other stuff planned, and then all of a sudden, boom! It was here. And and uh, you know, maybe down the road, maybe fortieth. <laughs> well, you know, or thirty five, or or what, whatever the case may be. Are you are you somebody, yeah. Rach, that is kind of like nostalgic? Are you like now? Obviously, you're going to celebrate now, Slave, which is an amazing record, but. Like, like for me, and, and I've known you guys since, you know, hell before you were signed, uh, it doesn't, like when I hear these numbers, like 30 years since the first record and 30 years coming up on Slave, it just doesn't feel like it was that long ago. It feels like yesterday we were kids in Studio One, you know, hanging out. Like, I, does it, does it oh, blow your man. mind that this time has gone by? It really does. And it, 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 <laughs> and someone said like i'll i'll find out about anniversaries of skid row certain anniversaries online because i it was it just went by like in a blink of an eye and people will say oh skid, first skid row came, album came out on this day on this day the single was released i'm like wow this is crazy that it's been 30 years and you know 25 years for this and that and the other thing and it's like it, it blows my mind how quickly time has passed and that and leading up just backtracking a little bit to the the situation we're in now with the pandemic it's like 
we were on the road for so much of that, a better part of 30 years. And it's like, now's the time to, and not just us, like a lot of bands uh, tour constantly. So now's the perfect time to sit back, take stock in your life, reflect on your life and, and just really enjoy this downtime and make the best of it, make the best of a, a not great situation. And it's the perfect time to be creative in whatever avenue you go, whether you're a paint, you're going to paint or, or you're going to sculpt or you're going to write songs or whatever you're going to make. So just, you know, this is a time to be creative. I have a feeling when, you know, the smoke clears, there's going to be like such a, like a mountain of art that's going to come and hit everybody. And there's going to be some really cool things, whether it's music or, or, or what, or movies, whatever it is, because people are creating and creating and creating. And I love it, man. I absolutely love the idea of what uh, good times are going to be again. The other day I was in the supermarket and over the music system, I remember you played and I was just like, this is crazy. Like, like, you know, I would, you know, just in this setting, like what's happened, like, this is just nuts. And, you know, for you, I mean, it'd be something I'd, I would think you'd be really proud of, but what are your thoughts? I mean, when you hear those songs and when you, are you somebody that goes back? I mean, I know you play stuff from the first two records all the time, but do you, when you put yourself in that space of 30 years ago and writing those songs with snake and the, 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 what, what comes in your mind? Does it take you back to being kids writing those songs or do you, do you reflect on all the time? Like what, what do you think of as, as one of the people that created that? Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my big thing when I hear it or when we play it, even when we're on stage, it, it, uh, it goes through my head. What, where we were when we did like Ooh, snakes living room on ah, my back deck on my house when I lived in Jersey, this and that. And it, it just pops in my head or, or something, an event that happened during it or snowing outside. I remember having the, like I spun into a snowbank on the way to snakes house, you know, stuff like that. And it, it just from a real personal standpoint. And then, you know, we play a song and still to this day, when I see people just, singing our songs and, and back to us. And now they have their, their kids or their, their younger siblings with them. It absolutely blows my mind, man. The first time I ever saw like someone with a little kid on their shoulders was at a kiss concert. And um, it was probably like the third concert kiss concert that I went to. And I was just like, wow. Cause at that point they had been around maybe, you know, 10 years or so. And I'm like, all right, okay, this is cool. This is very cool. <laughs> you know, and <clears throat> I never thought that would happen with us. And now it does. And it just, it blows my mind, man. And believe me, I don't take a second of that for granted. Yeah. It's really amazing. Mean, it's, it stopped me when I was pushing my cart and, and I heard that come on in the mix. Cause <laughs> again, going back so far with you guys, I just, you know, I, these are my friends. I mean, I've known these guys forever. And I, my mind just like, again, it feels like studio one or the stone pony was like yesterday. And I'm like, I guess this is that now, you know, I guess it is, you know, obviously they're not going to play a piece of me in the supermarket, but I was just like, it just doesn't feel like it, it would ever occupy that space. Cause it hasn't been that long, but it has. I know it went by so fast too. It's so fast. Like 30 years has been a blink of an eye, man. It's crazy. <laughs> 
I found the ticket stub the other day in my drawer. I literally stumbled upon it at the Stone Pony 88 before, just when you guys got signed and played the pony. And, and I was just like, you know, this is 32 years ago, this ticket stub. It's just ridiculous, man. It's crazy. Rach, you may have heard as we went into the break a little bit of a uh, song from the third Skid Row album, Subhuman Race, which is the one I'm waiting for, the 30th anniversary full performance of. But something tells me in five years I'm not getting that, am I? <laughs> I have a feeling there will be two people in the front row. me and who else funny like uh lotring he'll be there he's always telling us to do breaking down he'll be there be you guys front row and that's it (laughs) dude dude subhuman race i gotta say honestly for me might be my all-time favorite skid row record i i mean it i can't I know you guys don't feel that way, but I can't tell you how much I freak. And I have, I know, annoyingly so over the years, but I worship that record. Was it just for you, for the band? Like, was it just the timing of it that just, because do you not, do you guys, how do you feel about the material or, and, and do you have like a weirdness about it just because the band was imploding? Um. Well, that was happening, but that's not that's not what makes me feel the way I do about the record. It just the the whole experience from top to bottom wasn't great. I think the uh, except for the songwriting, I thought was fun, and there are songs on there that I like a lot. Um, we do beat yourself blind every now and then. We've uh, done acoustic shows, and we do breaking down at the acoustic shows, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those records. Uh, our our time was up. You know what I mean? Uh, at that point, um, it, it, the, the, it was changing of the guard as far as what what was in. So we had that against us. We had the turmoil in the band uh, within the band against us, and it's just the the recording process wasn't what we were used to. So that was against us. But you know what? It, it's I don't hate the record. Uh, just I wished it came out differently you know um there was a lot of changes to songs that that i wasn't crazy about but you know it is what it is man uh there's definitely songs on there that i I would love to do live for sure actually we busted out medicine jar when we toured um uh, australia and that was fun (laughs) i don't think anyone knew the song but it was fun to play (laughs) oh dude i i'm telling i mean frozen are you kidding i mean just the heaviness i i i you know i've been preaching about this for forever and fans know it but i mean i tell people all the time because of the original band it's sort of the forgotten record because it didn't have the big hit it didn't like you said 95 no matter what you put out then was going to be swimming upstream but there were a lot of bands that i think had whether inner turmoil or turmoil in the music scene or whatever but somehow made what i think are incredible records and that's what i think of for subhuman race i mean uh, it's just um i listened to it today like it still just came out and it you know, I know, I know it was a weird time and all, but my God, that record is monstrous in my opinion. So I always just, um, when my producer asked me, well, what Skid Row songs? I'm like, you got to put something in from Subhuman. As a matter of fact, I, uh, Scotty did a guitar thing. I don't know if you saw it, Riff Master or whatever that just came out. 
Did you see that yeah, on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah. So yep. he's play. Yep. He's like for an hour and a half. He's playing riffs, and he opens it up saying, "Well, there might be some stuff in here that everybody doesn't know, but you, you, you know, check it out." And I'm like, "Oh, great! He's going to give me some of Frozen, and I'm going to get some of Eileen, and and there's not one thing from Subhuman." I immediately texted, and I'm like, "What are you doing, man?" <laughs> he goes, "The next time, I promise you." He goes, "The next time, I promise you, I'll throw one or two in for you." I'm like, "All right, just for the one or two people standing in the front row." God, that's so funny. Hey, so (laughs) you're talking about songwriting before, and it's pretty amazing for you to have had a partnership. In in this world, having a partnership with somebody well over 30 years, whether it's marriage, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, writing in the same band is is pretty amazing. How have, speak a little bit about your relationship and connection, both personally and in songwriting with snake which has now gone on for well over 30 years i mean did you guys know when you first met that you would have that kind of bond um i'm sure we didn't but it was the first time we got together to write songs was 1986 he worked at the music store i was still living at home and we wrote a couple songs at my house after uh, he was done with work and it it clicked and I knew at that moment that we had something really special, you know, uh, creatively. Um, and then, you know, we were kids, man. We, we, as far as someone I see or, or communicate with, there's no one that I do more than snake, you know, um, I've known Scotty longer. Uh, but as far as, as just, Snake and I talk every day, whether it's about business, about, you know, uh, Yankees are great and the Mets suck, whatever. Um, you know, we just talk about stuff and it's, it's a daily thing. And no, we didn't, neither one of us could have ever known how, um, how long this was going to run. But, you know, we're, we're, we, we know each other well enough to, to almost sense when something is either going good if we don't talk that day or going bad in someone's life. And, you know, we call, we call each other and, and, uh, we sometimes actually finish each other's sentences. as gross as that sounds. We really do. And, you know, it, it's going to be, uh, uh, this is a lifelong friendship and a lifelong partnership. And, and, you know, we, sometimes we don't agree. Sometimes we'll argue, but at the end of the day, we're, we're still going to be buds and, and still going to be involved in each other's life. Of that very first writing session that you did with him back in 86, any of the stuff that you wrote on that very first day make it to the first record? No, it didn't. I don't believe it did. If he's listening, he could point it out because he's a better historian than I am. But I don't believe it did. It made it to the demo stage and like Atlantic heard it and, and, uh, you know, uh, other labels, we, we brought it to other labels, but. Um, that that first writing session, I don't believe anything made it to a record. Was "Walk with a Stranger" part of it? No, that that was a little later. And, okay, because uh, yeah, because that did come years. out. I bring that up because that at least was released yeah. on that on that forty seasons, or I think it was on that. But that that did make it. That actually was recorded at least for the first record. It was recorded, yeah. Um, but I know Trickster redid it, and yep. it's on one of their records. So, yeah. So, so the first of the stuff on the first record, 
what was the earliest song that you wrote? Um, well, Snake had Midnight. Um, that was, he wrote that, I think, before we even met. Um, and that was one of the songs on a cassette that he, he uh, had given to me. Um, let's see, er, the real early stuff was probably Making a Mess, but that wasn't super early. Uh, let me think, 18 in Life, that was really early. Can't Stand the Heartache was an idea that I had that I brought in just like he did with Midnight. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's – talk about going back, man. It's hard to well, recall all this stuff. Well, yeah, well, well, I, you know, and I, I bring this up because I think it's interesting when we talk about these anniversaries and everything that me, you know, all of us being from New Jersey – I remember seeing the band and hearing some of these songs at these clubs. I remember seeing you before you were signed. I remember seeing you before Sebastian was in the band when you had Matt Fallon singing. So I'm, I'm giving people deep history of Skid Row just to kind of give them the lineage that, you know, a lot of people think the first, it all started when they got that first record in 89, but you already had put in three years of writing and working and lineups and things to figure it all out before the Skid Row everybody knew from that first record. Oh, absolutely. That that was written well before uh, the Skid Row, you know, was Skid Row. I mean, some stuff was written before we even changed the name to Skid Row. And uh, it's just, yeah, it, it, you have your whole, I always say you have your whole life to write your first record. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I always wanted to ask you, I, w- I want to ask you about this too. So I just watched a documentary about Shannon Hoon, the singer from Blind Melon. And uh, it's a really, you know, it's an unbelievable documentary because it's all footage he shot of himself at the time with a handheld camera. But there's a big moment in this storyline where he taught, where Rolling Stone magazine approaches Blind Melon, No Rain's this huge hit, and they want to do a cover on Blind Melon. And of course, you know, that's a huge moment in most bands' career. And they say to the band, Rolling Stone, yeah, but we only want the singer. We only want Shannon Hoon on the cover. And it leads to a big dust up and internal discussion within the band of how that plays and who's going to, ego's going to be bruised, whether it's good for the band, whether they don't do it, whether they hold out. And I started thinking, who else was faced with that sort of decision and how tough that would be? And I thought of you guys, because Rolling Stone did a cover piece on Skid Row and only put Sebastian on the cover. I've never asked you guys this. What was that discussion like internally? Was that a tough thing to agree to do, given especially how much of you know you and Snake had even put in the band before the first record? No, it wasn't like... we. We didn't know what was going to be on the cover. We didn't know whether it was going to be the the picture, the full page that was inside or what. But honestly, all Snake and I cared about is seeing Skid Row on the cover of Rolling Stone, those two words. And whether it was uh, Sebastian or whether it was my right foot or whether it was Snake or whoever it was, it's those two words, Skid Row are on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, that's all we cared about. and. Uh, to this day, it, it wasn't something that, that caused any kind of tension, any kind of tension within the band at all. 
Yeah, because I would take that. I would think it would. You know, I would think that, the, you know, egos and whatever come into play and you're like, oh, man, I want to be on the cover, too. And but then the other side of it is like, hell, man, they're doing a cover piece on my band, uh, I, I, you know, however it plays out. But with this whole bit in this Blind Melon doc, it was a big thing. Like the other guys in the band were pissed and then they held out and then they actually held out and ended up getting the full band on the cover because they Shannon Hoon said he wasn't going to do it without that. So it was like a big storyline in that new documentary. And then I was thinking about the same thing with you guys. I just didn't know how it played out back then for you. Yeah. What was funny is someone from Rolling Stone, I forget exactly who it was. They go, we, they never put full bands on the cover and I go, all right, whatever. And like for 10, 10 issues after that was full band. So I was like, ah, okay, whatever. But you know, it, it, like I said, skid row, that's all we cared about. Um, I want to ask you about some stuff past the first three records, because for people that don't know, there's some, re- I, in my opinion, some really good Skid Row stuff past the first three records that I want to get your take on real quickly. But one last thing, and and I got to I gotta ask you this. You know, you're not a dumb guy. You're a really smart guy. And you know that fans who hold out hope for seeing an original lineup reunion one day for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly, they point as to you as the problem. That's Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. That's the media perception. That's the fans' perception. What do you say to that? Do you take you take that on your shoulders and own that, or is there more to it than what the fans think? Yeah, well, it's not just me. Obviously, I I love the fact that they think I wield that kind of power. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's it, we're happy what we're doing, man. And it just, just talking about it gets so old. It's like, all right, I get it. However, this is Skid Row. So enjoy us or forget about us. You know what I mean? Um, that's, that's where we're at. And we're putting together a new record and writing new songs. And Z is the man. And, and Rob Hammersmith is our drummer and he kicks ass. So I, I don't know what to tell people at this point. It just gets so old where you could probably hear my eyes rolling, you know, and that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it comes up to given that these landmark anniversary of anniversaries of these records, which you said you're going to go out and do slave next year or which will be great. I mean, I, people will be very excited about that, but that usually comes with that territory as you know. Yeah, I don't care. We're, we're going out. This is skid row. We're going to play a skid row record and celebrate the anniversary of it. The records you made uh, with Johnny singing, I love Thick Skin, and I still listen to it all the time. I think there's great stuff on that record. And and then you made a record, which I know was also a difficult record for you guys to make, which I don't even know if many people know about, called Revolutions Per Minute, where Snake wasn't even all that engaged at the time, and you wrote all the songs on it. What's your What's your take on that period of the band? Um, well, when with Thick Skin, we were, you know, it was the first record with member changes, and we just wanted to see, you know, I shouldn't say wanted to, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but we're, we just put our heads down and wrote and rehearsed and just tried to uh, do things the way we always did it. And uh, I'm really, really, we all are really proud of that record. We put a lot, lot into it. And um, there's, you know, we do ghost every night in the set and it goes over great. 
and um, the album seems to be more popular overseas than it is here. But nonetheless, we're very proud of the record. Born a Beggar, Born a Beggar is one of my favorite songs, and I know that goes back to when you guys were, were doing the band Ozone Monday. That that's got some uh, you know origins there, but you know there there really is great material and then of course there's a rework you you covered your own song in that version of I remember you I remember you too which I think is a lot of fun and I I really urge people to check out that record if they didn't get it the first time around cuz there's really some great things on there and what about the follow up I know that was a really tough time for you and you took the whole thing on your shoulders with revolutions but do you stand behind that record do you like it Yeah I do like it um uh, as any of our songs, I still hear stuff that I'm like, I wish we could redo this. But, you know, it was very tough. It, it was really tough um, doing that record. We had it was experimental, too. And we took a lot of shit for it, you know, for having a country type song on there. But we were just like, you know what, man, it, we're not expecting a platinum record to show up at the door. Let's have some fun. Let's experiment with stuff. And I, I believe every band needs to do that and get it out of their system. Um, there's there's a few songs on there that I absolutely love. The song Disease that Snake and I wrote is just, I love that song. And I would like to start incorporating that into our set. We're at a point now in our career where we have so many songs and, you know, just so much time to do them that... Um, you know, we we love uh, when we're on the road, when we could change up and have a an A set list, a B set list and a C set list and just keep changing it up. So um, that 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 song and a, a bunch of the others, man, it was it was just cool. It was cool to just stretch out a little bit and, and try different stuff. Yeah, there's things on like I like on that record a lot. I remember we did that party in Times Square. That's when Piazza got up and sang with you guys. We did that release at the Hard Rock. I mean, there's great memories around that time. Uh, even though you know, obviously there was you know it was a, it was a tough period as well. And now the EPs, the last things were these two EPs, United World Rebellion. Now the the record you're working on that will eventually come out, which will be the first with ZP singing. That's going to be a full length record, not a third EP, right? Correct. It's, it's going to be the third installment of the trilogy, but it uh, is going to be full length. Yeah. Okay. And uh, last thing, and maybe the most important question of this whole interview, interview, where are we at with the nose ring, with the chain? Is that happening now or not? You are the innovator. Oh, yeah. You've, you've brought it in and out at different times. Where are we at now with that? Well, I'm not wearing it at the moment, but I'm not wearing <laughs> socks either. You know? but, no, uh, I mean yeah, when no, you play. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you saw me when I busted it out at Rocklahoma. The guys, especially Scotty, had been just, uh, you know, nudging me. Dude, you got to put that back in. We're playing this show. You, gotta, you should put it back in. You should put it back in. And I did it for a few years. And then I... Uh, I happened to find one before that Rocklahoma show. I was going through some old stuff and I found one. I'm like, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to tell anybody. And dude, I put it on the dressing room as we were leaving. I was walking behind everyone and no one noticed it. And then I passed you and you noticed it. <laughs> oh, I was the first. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Uh, it was so funny. Everyone started noticing it on stage. All the guys were like, no way. <laughs> it was pretty funny. So have you rocked it ever since? Yeah, yeah, I have. 
And then you remember, we've talked about this before, but I remember that was such a thing, as you know. And then that woman on MTV copped your look. What was her name? Jane Child or something? Jane Child had it, yeah. yeah she and she, she, you must have been pissed, man. She took your, your look. Well, you know what? I wasn't pissed. I, I was, because I didn't invent it. I took it from uh, a Sex Pistols super fan. And she had it, and I was like, oh, that, that could be kind of cool. I'm just going to do it a little different. And so, you know, it, what, what's the saying is, uh, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery. I probably screwed that up. But, um, you know, it was cool. At first, I was just like, this is lame, man. <laughs> she's doing my thing, and she's all dance music. and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, it is. It, 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 it is what it is. You know, I, there, there was a couple other guys and bands that tried it. And, uh, you know, it, it's like I, I've been, a, no pun intended, attached to that look. And um, whenever anyone mentions my name, I guess they mention, yeah, the guy, some people don't even know my name. It's just like the guy with the chain from the nose <laughs> to the ear. So I, I, I was going to. I was thinking about legally changing my name to that. The guy with the chain from the nose to the ear. You know? <laughs> so you'd legally change it a third time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, that's too good. You know, and did anybody, like, in the height of Skid Row Mania, w- when you were wearing that uh, and stuff, did anybody ever pull on it, or did you ever get it caught on anything? Because that would be painful as a mother, I would think. Yeah, I got it caught twice just kind of going head banging nuts and and it got caught on the tuner of my bass and just oh. pulled it straight out of my ear um the nose it didn't really come out of because it was kind of clasped on there but it would come out of my ear and I'm not saying it didn't hurt my nose it hurt like hell um but twice i thought that i completely ripped my earlobe open but it just elongated the hole in it for a while um yeah that happened twice on stage but no People would just joke around like, hey, I'm going to grab it. And I'm like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to do that. That's yeah. like Zach Wilde always tells me. Zach Wilde always tells me people come up to him and want to grab his beard. He's like, well, what, what can I? You don't, you know, you just don't grab somebody's beard. Like, yeah, just- exactly. It, it's funny because Zach and I were having that discussion uh, about the, the same exact discussion at the last show I saw those guys. And- you know, we we're talking about the chain and the beard and, uh, the, you know, people just deciding to pull your sleeve up to see your tattoos and stuff like that. It's like, hey, man, personal space. Personal yes. space is very important. Now more than ever in pandemic times, now more than ever. I think social distancing is with us for a while. So, Yeah, without a doubt. Anyway, man, look, it's great catching up. I appreciate the time. Uh, everybody, in the interim, while we wait for a new Skid Row record, everybody check out Rachel's line of soap. It's called Dirty Rocker, and you can learn more at DirtyRockerSoapCo.com. That's it, right? That's correct, yeah. And uh, an inst- you have an Instagram account for the soap? Yeah, Dirty Rocker Soap. Dirty Rocker Soap. Check it out. Uh, I'll let I'll give I'll file a review once I get mine in the mail, Rach, and let it sit for a little bit. If it can if it can make my dirty ass smell pretty, it's you know it's good stuff. So <laughs> there you go, man. Right on, brother. Good talking to you. Good catching up with you, man. Hopefully, uh, I know you're in Nashville now. One of these days, when things clear, I'm going to get down there and do a week of shows. Every rock person in the world is in Nashville, so we'll have to have you come in, sit and do a full show one of these days. I'm there, man. All right, Rach, take care of yourself. Stay safe, man. Thank you.
Well, I've known that guy for decades, know the Skid Row guys forever, being fellow Jersey guys. We pretty much grew up together, and uh, great to talk to Rachel, catch up with him a little bit. And his soap, since that interview was done, he sent me some. It's really, really great stuff. So I wish him luck with that new business and look forward to hearing what those guys have in store for some new music, hopefully sometime sooner than later. So thanks to Rachel Boland. Thanks to Rick Emmett for joining me earlier. Thanks to Katie Irizarry the producer of the Eddie Trunk podcast. And thank you for listening wherever you are in the world and for subscribing and checking it out. uh, This podcast with new episodes every single Thursday at Eddie Trunk on social media. You guys have yourselves a wonderful week and I'll see you next Thursday. I'll bring you that Pete way tribute that I did on my Sirius XM show with Mike McCready, Nikki six, um, Joe Elliott and Michael Schenker. My goodness, it's going to be amazing. Uh, again, you don't have to wait. If you have Sirius or XM, it's on demand on their app. If you're outside of America or Canada or don't have Sirius XM, I will bring it to you next week on the podcast finally as we remember the late bassist and co-founding member of UFO, Wasted. He produced records, the great Pete Way. All right, have a good week, everybody. Catch you next Thursday. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.